How often should pastors speak about current cultural issues? And then, what does effective evangelism look like? Decision fatigue. What do doctors wish we knew? And later, it's Friday. You know what that means? A top five list. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy July 1st. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian from July is here. I was Aubrey. just thinking that you said July 1st, and I was like, no, it's not. Oh, wait, it's July 1st. Which makes this the 4th of July weekend. Unbelievable. I love the 4th of July. What do you love about 4th of July? Are we going fireworks? Are we going grilling mm. out? What, what are, oh, what are man. we Oh, man, probably fireworks. I remember last year. I hope we can do this over the weekend. My youngest son is, uh, like, if you know the Enneagram, he's a seven, I think. So he loves experiences. And so last year, all he wanted to do was run through our neighborhood chasing down the fireworks because okay. he wanted to be, like, as close as possible, like, in them. And it was so fun. So I hope that's what we do. We run around chasing fireworks. That was very on brand of you to bring in to Fourth of July the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> That was, that was good. It's amazing how I can do that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, we always get away to my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's cabin over 4th oh, of July. Right. So hopefully that'll happen again. Hopefully and, you guys have fun. Uh, just, it's just a great time to be away. So anyway, happy 4th of July happy weekend, everybody. Happy 4th of July. Like, now we're in the middle of summer. Summer is... Now summer's on. Like, it is in the middle on. of yes. summer. Well, I love we're it. glad that you're with us. If you've missed any of our shows this week where we've talked about some heavy stuff, serious stuff, uh, namely abortion, a lot this week. Yep. And, uh, you know, religious rights and prayer at schools and all sorts of other things, but also have had some good times. Uh, we'd encourage you to go get the uh, podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, Aubrey, as we uh, wrestle with uh, all the cultural issues of the day, mm, right? So you, many. You got abortion, yeah. you got uh, sexuality, yeah. you've got. Uh, transgender conversations, yeah. you've got prayer, you've got guns, all of this stuff, yes. right? And I, that only was like the biggies, but we just keep keeping going. You and I are both pastors. I think mm-hmm. something we all wrestle with as pastors is how how many of these am I supposed to speak on? Totally. And I don't even mean necessarily from the pulpit, but that's part of this. Yeah, absolutely. But is it my job to weigh in on every Everything. big thing that happens. Uh, is that yeah. part of discipleship? Yeah. Is that part of leading and shepherding mm-hmm. well? Or is that kind of chasing your tail? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, or do we each have kind of our pet ones that we right, want right. to do? That's so, good uh, question. I, I would love to know what you have to think. Let me read this tweet from uh, a pastor. We've uh, read his tweets before named Josh Howerton. He's out of Dallas. He's a great follow. He said this, and I wonder if you agree with this. He said, I'll be really transparent. Uh, Here is a pastoral conundrum I'm not liking. Pastors must, and he capitalized must, pastors must speak to current cultural issues. If we don't disciple our people, the world will. But now there's a current cultural Mm. issue every three days, and a warring culture is dictating what I'm talking about. So you kind of feel that, right? Yeah. Talk to me about that tweet and also how you process how we as pastors should be navigating what I think Josh is right about, a different cultural issue every couple days. It is so complicated because on one hand, like he's saying, it's right that you don't want political pundits or the the waves of society 
um, to be the thing that's discipling your people. But I also agree with this. It can feel very difficult to feel like you have to have a well thought out, nuanced biblical response to everything when these things keep coming right. all the time. That's right. And so I wonder if it's a matter of being like, I'd actually like to hear what older pastors, seasoned pastors have to mm, say about this, because yeah. I wonder if it is a matter of just responding slowly, perhaps, you know, a few times a year you have the special weekend event where you teach your people like, how do we respond to current cultural issues? Mm. And you put them all in a bucket and you think biblically through those lenses, but you aren't necessarily reacting to everything all the time. Unless this is where I have like a little asterisk, unless it particularly pertains to your church culture. For instance, you know, we're very open about like church with multi-ethnic vision, church with the multi-ethnic vision. So anytime there's issues around uh, racism that are front and center violence, Kevin feels very strongly that he needs to address it, either from his social media, from the pulpit, whatever. And in fact, if he doesn't, he gets a lot of pushback. Yeah. But as an example, and I think this is interesting, just tells you a little bit about church culture, though Kevin and I are both both firmly pro-life. No one said to him last weekend, why didn't you talk about Roe v. Wade? So that's where I I think if it does particularly pertain to your church culture, you might want to address it. It's important to address it. Otherwise, I wonder if we are being too moved by the waves of culture and there's a way to do it with with um, perspective and season and wisdom. I don't know, though, Brian. I mean, I'm obviously wrestling with it even when I talk right now. What do you think? Yeah, let me real fast. Josh gave a follow-up. He said, for the record, I'm more talking about social media, other forms of communication than I am preaching. We plan our preaching calendar a year in advance. So he's not necessarily saying, do I now preach on this? Do I now preach on this? I remember the first time I felt this, and you guys probably handled it differently than we did now that you say about, you know, kind of your makeup of your Mm -hmm. place and this, that. I remember when um, when George Floyd was killed, yeah. and every pastor is on social media going, "You must talk about this." Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what I w- yeah. what I'm going to say. Yeah, I remember feeling that tension, and you know, you got a radio show at that time too, mm-hmm. and you're just like, I don't know. There's mm-hmm. another comment here on a guy by the name of Josh Dawes. He said, "I think that's where it's important to speak to the underlying philosophies, ideologies that manifest in a new issue every three days." Instead of the issues themselves, get to the root problem and disciple people to recognize the error when the next issue pops up. So that's an interesting. Yeah, that's kind of a Kevin Van Hooser kind of talks about that, like everyday theology where you are supposed to look at like, what are the what are the idols and the longings underneath conversations that are happening culturally? And that's the thing you preach to. And so that's an interesting way to do it. So if you're getting at like. Really, is it a conversation about, uh, I don't know, safety, agency, whatever it is, like that's the heart of what you're talking about biblically and with the gospel in mind, rather than all these different things that come up every single day in the news. Yeah, I think what makes this difficult as well is sometimes you can get as much flack for what you don't talk about than what you do. Oh, totally. I'm not suggesting that this should be the pastoral stance, but if you say, I'm not going to talk about anything culturally, I'm just... You know, head to the grindstone, mm-hmm. we're talking about whatever, mm-hmm. then that sets the standard. Like, hey, yeah. or I'm going to talk about everything. If you go, for instance, you say, hey, I'm going to talk about race, but not abortion. Mm-hmm. Abortion is still super important to you, but it subtly sends the message. Yeah. This is more important than yep. that. Right. Uh, I may not agree with most of you, so I'm not going to bring it right. up. Whatever it might right. be. Um, I think one of the issues here is having multiple venues of communication. 
So yeah. social media, whether yeah. it be a blog, whether it be a pastoral email, right. like not everything. I'm a big right. believer that you can't just be chasing these things for your sermon. Yeah. Like, oh, this happened. I've got to, doesn't mean it never happens. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think this is a hard one. I, when I read that tweet, I was like, I don't know what I think about that. Like, I don't know. You know, know what's so, so interesting you bring up George Floyd is, so Kevin said a lot on his social media yeah. after George Floyd was killed. And then we... We posted about it on the church social media, but we didn't say anything that Sunday. At the time, it was only online service. And partly yes. it was because we filmed early. Mm-hmm. So it was before any news broke because yep. we f- would film earlier in the week. And we got a lot of flack for why not on Sunday morning. You said it here. You said it here. But it was almost like people don't give it the gravitas or the weight unless it's said on a Sunday morning. That's and fair. I don't like you're saying, I don't know if that's really a reason to or not to say anything but that is people's perspective so that's something to consider when you're when you're thinking about that's good and the pastors out there i i give one more piece of advice uh don't be scared but also uh, for really weighty topics don't speak off the cuff yeah Uh, totally i've I've gotten burned by that i remember one time something happened around immigration on a saturday night this Mm -hmm. was a couple years ago while president trump was in office and i got up and i said something before my sermon, yeah, and it was said sloppily. Oh. And it was said this, and it oh. angered people oh, okay. on certain sides. And I was like, I had to walk it back because yeah. I was like, that's not what I meant. Yeah, and so I'd encourage you: don't be scared, but don't be, don't be sloppy. Don't. That's be, good. That's uh, good. Don't be. Sloppy. Don't be thoughtless or careless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. be thoughtful because yeah. your words matter. The pastoral word, especially, I think you're right on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. certainly matters. Uh, as you know, last week I was on vacation. We were in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So fun. I'm glad I you mean, got to do that. So much my happy place yeah. because of the ocean. Like yeah. It is not even close with the other ones. Like if you and I are going to do a top five list later, if we did top five favorite vacations, mine would be beach, 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 something <laughs> This else beach, that is. beach. <laughs> uh, and so we'd be good to go. That's so, awesome. Uh, Myrtle Beach doesn't have a great boardwalk. I love a good boardwalk. I grew up going to Seaside in New Jersey. Nice. My family vacation at Ocean City, Maryland one was summer. Like, like, so a boardwalk, right? Yeah. You got to love the boardwalk. Yeah. Myrtle Beach doesn't really have a boardwalk, but they have a little bit where there's ice cream and pizza and all this stuff. So Fine. my family is walking the boardwalk. And Aubrey, something happened that you and I have discussed before, but I want to circle back. Are you ready? Let's hear. Me and Jackson and Carrie and Emily are walking down the boardwalk. Okay. When I look up and I hear somebody talking loudly, and there's a lot of hubbub going around yeah. right now. and. Uh, the, the boardwalk in Myrtle Beach, little little suspect, little shady. Okay, so okay. you got you got kind of the head on a swivel. Yep, yep. And all of a sudden, I realize it's a it's kind of a, a shorter guy, and he's got a um, like almost like a sign, like a picket. Like okay, he's got like a, yep. a big. You know, he's it's almost like he's picketing, but he's not. Yeah, it's got a Bible verse on it. Okay, Jesus forgives you, oh. or Jesus offers. It's, it's something about forgiveness and salvation. Okay, right. So it's nice, not necessarily like turn or burn. But then he's just preaching. Oh, he's just as people are walking by. Yeah, and it, the only part that I heard, I actually agreed with. Okay, it was a line that you and I would preach or say on here. Yeah, he said. If Jesus is not your Lord, he can't be your Savior. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. We've talked about that before. But every time I see the street <laughs> preacher, yeah. the, board, the boardwalk seems to attract them. Yes. the I'm going to hold a sign and just yell as right. families are walking right. by. And actually, I, Carrie and I just kind of walked by. I didn't even acknowledge it. And there was a family in front of us 
that were just mocking him, not to him, but to each other, yeah, of right? Course. As we're walking I mean, that's away. kind of the response. That so happens. you are the master of evangelism. <laughs> you got your master's degree in evangelism. Yeah. Here's what always happens in my soul when I see something like this. That is so cringeworthy. It's so cringeworthy. Why would anybody ever do uh, that? How uncomfortable. We've talked about yeah. going up with people with fake surveys. And yeah. But like this is just uh, like so. I know. Oh, is this really helpful for the gospel? Yeah. And then at the same time, I think to myself, what are you doing? I mean, so that's always where I fall back on, right? Is like, so what wh- do you do with this guy yeah, that I saw? Yeah, so I think this is the hard thing because there are best practices in evangelism, yes. and that isn't one. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But I will say the question I always say to myself, well, his bad evangelism is better than my non-evangelism. <laughs> no, like, at least he's trying. And I, what am I doing? Nothing, you know? And so that's the part where I'm like, you got to give some of these kind of cringeworthy methods a little bit of honor that's due them because though it's, I think, misguided and not helpful, at least they're trying something. And who knows the person that's hurting that day that's on the boardwalk that actually goes, you know, there may be one out of 200 people that like comes to faith in Christ because of this guy. So I... I I don't know. A little bit I'm like, you, you go and do what God has told you to do. Uh, but when we come back to best practices in evangelism, like what what we know from Scripture is that like relationship is the best way to do that. Okay. And though we did see, we do see the apostles preaching and proclaiming Jesus like from the public square uh, often. And so you can't, I don't know, you can't necessarily argue with that, but there were... There were places where they would go where like public square debates were happening and known to have happened. And so it wasn't just like randomly walking down the street. It was like, oh, this is where public debate happens in our town. We're going to go hear who's debating today, you know? Yeah. Um, And so I again, I'm kind of going back and forth here, but I just think. There's no greater evangelistic method than like true friendship. And mm. and I mean that like you get to know somebody, you share the gospel with them. And that can be you get to know them in a few minutes, in an hour, or it can be like several years of relationship. But building that relational rapport, especially in this day and age that's so anti-Christian and so anti-gospel, like that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's less cringeworthy but again, I you know I I feel like I'm just talking out of both sides of my mouth and everything we're talking about today. But I also think the boldness to proclaim Jesus and Jesus's love and Jesus' salvation, like we've shied away from that too much. Yeah. And so there has to be intentionality, whether you're preaching from the pulpit or you're pouring into people, intentionality to actually do it as well. So, what do you think best practices looks like in terms of? So I agree with you. Friendship is always going to be number one on that list. But what else is on that list for the non-preachers out there? Mm -hmm. So the person out there who's like, man, I do want to be more bold. Yeah. Right. The Bible tells us to uh, do the work of an evangelist. Like I want to be, but, but I don't know what, how to best do it. I would never stand on a boardwalk or a street corner and just yell. Yeah. And I get the friendship thing. That's that feels long term and hard. Mm-hmm. What what's in the middle there? What do mm-hmm. you think? Can I give you a really good example from our friend our friend Rick Richardson, who is just an evangelist so good. at heart, an evangelist in practice, an evangelist everywhere he goes. Okay. He is so intentional about things like he and another uh, professor at Wheaton 
um, get together and they have a science fiction book club that they're a part of. Okay. And a part of it is because they both love science fiction books. Mm -hmm. But what they've done is intentionally built relationships with other science fiction fans that are not Christians, built this book club in order to like, it's actually something they love. They're not pretending. They're passionate about these books. They talk about these books. They build relationships that leads to evangelism because they're intentionally going outside of like the Christian bubble. Rick Richardson, again, moved to Chicago downtown because all of his neighbors in the suburbs were Christians. And he was like, I can't be an evangelist here. Everybody knows Jesus. (laughs) Intentionally, he and his wife moved to the city in order to build relationships with their neighbors. And look, they have their their gay neighbors over for like wine on Friday nights. They go to dinner with their neighbors. And the whole time he's so intentional about like pointing people towards how much Jesus loves them. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a middle ground is like, are you being intentional about not faking it, not being inauthentic, but like the things you're passionate about going and doing that thing with like some gospel lens or gospel motivation in mind. Um, And, and I know there's some fear about like, we don't want to make people projects. We don't want to, well, at the end of the day, like, I still think it's okay to go after people intentionality yeah. with the hope and the prayer that, like, you can point them to Jesus as you're doing life together. Mm. I, I wish I, 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 we were in a bit of a rush, and I would, don't think I would have ever done this anyway. I kind of wanted to go up to the guy and just be like, tell me your story. Yeah, how, yeah. What got you to here? Yeah, um, yeah. Because he looked really sheepish too. Like it was yeah. interesting. It was just, there was just something. I, there is sometimes I feel a little bad for those guys. Like, do they know it's okay that they don't have to do this? Do yeah. they know it's like they can just like put the micro, the megaphone down and like make friends instead? Yeah. You know, sometimes I worry about them and their souls, honestly. I did want to go give them a high five for Jesus can't be, yeah. he must be your Lord. You're if like, do you listen a, to the comic guy? I was like, that was a good line, man. <laughs> that preaches like good one. So. I wonder what you think out there, because as you said, I think the best thing you said is sometimes I then look and go, his bad evangelism is better than my non-evangelism. I do think that uh, we need to take a look at our own lives and uh, what role does evangelism play? Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, this week we've tackled some difficult subjects, heavy subjects, important subjects for us as Christians uh, to think about. But I could use a palate cleanser. Yeah, that's always nice to have. We need a break every once in a while. And that's what our executive producer, (laughs) Keith Conrad, does for us every Friday. We love him for this. Every Friday at this exact time at 4.50, what we like to do uh, is Keith comes in and he hands us a stack of stories from the internet. Yes, he does. That are meant to be uh, just as surprising or funny or mm-hmm. cringy or whatever as possible. And what makes this fun for us is we don't read them before we We've do. We've never seen them until right now. And so that you get what we, how we respond is yes. how we are feeling. Yes. Uh, so I am excited to do that. Aubrey, why don't you lead oh, us okay, off? okay. I'm flipping the paper over. You can hear it. Here we go. This is out of New York. <laughs> the title's funny. Grifting Granny. Elderly Bronx lady bilked government out of 650000 blew it at the casino. Oh, no. A grifting granny from the Bronx bilked the federal government out of more than 650 k then blew most of it at a casino, authorities mm. said Tuesday. 
Carmen Soto, 77 years old, had apparently been plotting the scheme since 1960. Wow. That's, that's a that's long the con. Long, game. long con that's right the there. Long game. When she applied for two phony Social Security cards and began collecting benefits off the bogus government IDs around 1994, according to the Bronx District Attorney's Office. She was finally busted this year after a trip to the State Department of Motor Vehicles where facial recognition technology blew the lid off the illicit venture, officials said. Soto, who had a third Social Security card in her real name, had applied for government benefits using the other two IDs with the aliases Gloria Sanchez and Carmen Maldano in what Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark called a carefully orchestrated scheme to bilk the system. They got her. Over nearly three decades of collecting dough from Social Security and the city's Human Resources Administration, Soto conned well over half a million dollars. This is unbelievable, but the wealth of the supporting documents was her own doing. She was nabbed while trying to renew a driver's license, and the DMV facial recognition technology matched her face with three separate IDs. She just pleaded guilty, second degree uh, guilty to second degree grand larceny in May. And then the worst part about it is she lost most of it gambling. There you go. I think she, wow. might, she might have a problem. Was that wrong? <laughs> should I not have done that? There should be a movie or a show about her, though. I mean, that be, we, that's comical. We don't want to cheer on the criminals, but <laughs> it's, 30 years before. Yeah, that's caught. commitment right there. It's no small deal yeah. right there. All right, next one's out of Colorado. Man steals patrol car, responds to call <laughs> intoxicated. <laughs> A man was arrested after investigators said he stole a Park County uh, Sheriff's patrol vehicle, evaded police, and was shot at by the deputies early morning hours on Monday. Jeremiah James Taylor allegedly broke into the unstaffed Park County Sheriff Lake George substation and stole a 2013 Dodge Durango. He then went to the location of a domestic violence call before 3.30 a.m., that was broadcast on the police channel. The people at the home said Taylor appeared to be intoxicated. They said he asked, where's the old man that's going to shoot someone? Uh, when the Teller County Sheriff's deputies arrived, he sped off. That was one of my biggest concerns that we were going to have at a high-speed pursuit with law enforcement vehicle crashing into an innocent citizen, the sheriff said. Taylor was spotted about two hours later when deputies pursued him. He hit speeds of 110 miles an hour and broke several traffic laws along the way. He crashed. They caught him. Uh, no wow. deputies were injured. Wow. Okay. That is entertaining. People are always stealing cars and they're drunk and doing funny things. Let them go, Lou. Someone going that fast has no time for a ticket. All right. Here's one out of South Carolina. Ooh. South Carolina man accused of attempted murder after fight over fettuccine. Fettuccine is not even that good. Wow. A South Carolina man is accused of attempted murder after police said he beat a woman over a dispute about a pasta dish, authorities said. James Howard Moultrie Jr., 31 years old of Mount Pleasant, was charged with attempted murder and unlawful conduct toward a child, according to Charleston County Sheriff's online booking records. I feel like they buried the lead a little bit here with that title. Uh, the victim told sheriff's deputies that she was severely beaten on Friday, accusing Moultrie of drinking and becoming angry because she had not made him chicken fettuccine. Okay. According to the sheriff's office, Moultrie and the victim became engaged in a heated argument before he pushed her onto the floor. A four-year-old child was reportedly within sight and had covered his ears during the incident. This is so sad. The victim took the boy out of the room, but when she returned, Moultrie allegedly punched and choked her and put his hand over her mouth and nose. No, this is a terrible story. 
An affidavit alleges that Moultrie put the boy at unreasonable risk of harm, affecting his physical and mental health and safety. A medical examination showed that the victim suffered a fractured nose and significant inflammation and swelling. Moultrie was arrested on Monday, the News and Observer reported. He was released, yikes, after posting $125,000 bail. And immediately went to the Olive Garden. (laughs) (laughs) That's the takeaway there. This is just a story of a dirty, terrible person. Yeah, alcohol tends to be the the, the commonality in these. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Next one, we're going to go over to Scotland. I love Scotland. After bride's luggage is lost, the Scots save the day. Of course they do. After two years of planning and $15,000 invested, Amanda and Paul Reisel were finally ready to tie the knot on Scotland's Isle of Skye, which would mean an eight-hour flight from their home state of Florida. It ended up taking three days. It was delay, 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 Paul mm. said, after stops in Philly, London, and Inverness. Around 11 p.m. Monday, the night before their wedding day, with their wedding rings and flowers, but without their luggage and attire. It dawned on me that we would have to cancel, and there was nothing else I could Aww. do, Amanda said. But the photographer had other ideas. I told them I was sure I could make this work, and Sky is an amazing place. She put out a request on social media, and by morning, Amanda had eight wedding dresses in her size to choose from. That's awesome. There were no strings attached. It was just a pure and genuine love for complete strangers. The school lunch lady happened to choose a dress offered by a fellow lunch lady. Nice. Nice. Wearing it meant even more to me, knowing it came from someone who loves and feeds her students just like I do. Paul accepted a kilt, and the couple, also gifted normal clothes to wear, were ready. The wedding was imperfectly perfect, Amanda tells the record. It was exactly what we needed without us knowing what we needed and wanted. She added, there will never be enough words for us to express how grateful we are. Oh, how nice! Isn't that nice? Do you still have your wedding dress somewhere? I have my wedding dress somewhere. Yep, at my in my mom's house. It is always interesting. Carrie does too, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, it just sits in the box. For yeah, the it just sits in life. the box. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're gonna do with it, especially because I don't have daughters, so it's nope. not like I'm passing it down. I just want to know if the Loch Ness monster showed up at their wedding. I think he did. Nessie showed up. She did. Okay, North Carolina. A squirrel knocks out power to three thousand <laughs> in downtown Asheville. A North Carolina utility company said a squirrel was to blame for a power outage that affected more than 3,000 customers. Duke Energy said more than 3,000 customers in the downtown area of Asheville, including multiple businesses and government buildings, lost power Wednesday morning when a squirrel came into contact with some wiring. Officials said the power was restored after 8.30 a.m. on Wednesday. The outage led to facilities including Buncombe's County Downtown Office delaying their Wednesday opening until the late morning. The Minnesota Valley Electric Cooperative said 4,000 customers lost power earlier in June when a squirrel came into contact with substation equipment. The outage lasted for a half hour. So, man, in in North Carolina, squirrels are problematic. They are. Wow. I think they're probably problematic everywhere, but this one uh, in North Carolina. Well, always fun. A good palate cleanser. Love it. Um, Brian, I got to tell you a story. I So last week okay. you were gone. I was. My husband was also out of town for a few days. So I had this like um, kind of time to myself after recording the show in the evening. Do I read a book? Do I watch something on Netflix? Do I watch something on Hulu? I'm in the middle of a few shows. I'm in the middle of a few books. 
And I could not make up my mind. I ended up flipping back and forth between all the things I wanted to do. And then I just went to bed so frustrated <laughs> with myself that I just, like, didn't enjoy my evening. Like, pick a thing and enjoy it, Aubrey. Sometimes I feel like I have a hard time making decisions when I have a lot of options and in front of me. And not just that. But I, I totally get what you're saying because, like, let's say, like, when Carrie and the kids aren't around at my house, like, let's say I have a whole evening like, I'd rather them be there, but yeah. the difference is you're like, oh, I could do whatever I want. I That's do- it. It's like and the it opportunity. overwhelming. Yes. And there's like the, am I going to blow this? Yeah. Like, I'm going to wake up the next morning and be like, I had the whole night. And I, I didn't use it right. I could have painted. I could have mowed yeah. the lawn. Yeah. I could have watched a game. Yes. I wouldn't have painted, but I could have done any <laughs> right. of it. Right. And then you end up just kind of do. I totally get I'm that. so glad you understand this because I felt like, what is wrong with me that I can't? And, and I did. I felt that pressure. Like, I'm ruining the night that I have to myself. I'm like, I've ruined the whole thing. And there's this great, uh, there's this great old poem by T.S. Eliot called J. Alfred Prufrock, and he talks about that. Like decisions are so hard when you have too many. It's like you get. Yes. So anyway, apparently, Brian, I didn't know this. This is a term for this called decision fatigue. Okay. All right, and uh, listen to this: making decisions day in and day out, whether they are as easy as picking a route home from work or as difficult as navigating a once in a lifetime pandemic can be exhausting and cause people to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or stressed. So I, I'm not alone. Apparently, this is called uh, decision fatigue, and it is a state of mental overload that can impede a person's ability to continue making decisions. Mm. All right, so over at the AMA, they have um, like a list of things that doctors wish we regular lay people <laughs> knew about decision making okay. to help us with our fatigue. All right. So here's here's one that I thought was interesting. Decisions depend on the setting. Uh, we have had to make decisions, especially those of us who have come out of covid that we've never had to make before. And we've had to manage a lot of anxiety we've never had to make before. So like questions back in the day about masks, et cetera. So that um, can add to the level of decision uh, fatigue that Mm -hmm. you feel. The other thing about decision fatigue is that it may make you feel tired, have brain frog, can actually make you think you're sick or something. Um, But then here's what they say. Um, Here's some tips. Okay, if you're in the middle of decision fatigue, streamline your choices. Mm. Have less options. And I feel like this would have solved my problem the other night if I didn't have Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus and three books to read. If it, I just would have been like, choose between one, Aubrey, or hey, choose hey, between hey. two, Aubrey. I can't choose between one. Yeah, you can't choose between one. Choice. Choose between two, Aubrey. That would have maybe simplified some of the fatigue that I felt. They also say try to delegate decisions. So this is what's nice about when your spouse is at home. Because usually, like, somebody's like, oh, we're going to watch this tonight, or oh, we're going to do this mm-hmm, tonight. Mm-hmm. So, delegating your decisions. Here's another one make big decisions in the morning. Really? Why? Yeah. Apparently, you are less, um, less exhausted in the morning. You have your most accurate and thoughtful decisions in the morning. You're more cautious and meticulous. In the afternoon, you hit a plateau. And by evening, our decisions are more impulsive, especially if you're tired or hungry. Hmm. So we're doing our show right now in the middle of decision fatigue. That's interesting. (laughs) Uh, Stop second-guessing yourself. Avoid rehashing decisions. Stop second-guessing yourself. Just let go. You've made a choice. Stick to it. Hmm. Okay, I feel like that's some good advice. Yeah. Uh, Develop daily routines. Uh, That can help put the less important tasks on autopilot. And so the bigger tasks, you have the energy you need to make decisions. 
And then you seek help. Like if this becomes actually a serious thing, get some help from a doctor if you're experiencing decision fatigue. Okay, have you thought about this before, decision fatigue? So not not the way they describe it there, yeah. but I will say that I have trouble making decisions. And yeah. uh, not like the small ones, like right. what are we going to eat right. tonight? But like this is actually a big problem for me. Like when uh, – so as a pastor, you know, you're kind of leading your church. I will overthink things. Yeah. So – you know, there's some people who see the issue, see the solution and just go and yeah. are always looking forward. I'm always like, yeah, but what about this? Mm-hmm. Or what about this? Mm-hmm. Or what about how are people going to react? I mm-hmm. do, I mean, uh, so I don't have I, I am an overthinker. Yeah. Interesting. Decisions. And then it wears me out. Like I totally you feel this exhaustion at the end. hundred percent. Yeah. Because a decision that should have taken an hour will sometimes sit there for like a week. Interesting. Then you're like, eh, I'm not going to really deal with this. Yeah. Right now. Uh, no. In all honesty, decision making for me, especially the bigger the decision is, uh, is hard. And is part of that because of that you're concerned of what other people think? I think or so. Yeah. I think so. Because that's obviously there's this scale of like what do I choose to watch on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. Blah, no, but then the, you're talking about things that actually do matter for other I people. Am, that people have opinions about. I will. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and this is why it's important to get other people involved in it. Um, other people who are invested. I remember years ago at our church. We were right on that precipice of either being a one-service church or a two-service church. Yep. And that should be a really obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Like, if we hit this number, we're going to do it. Yeah. It, it took me – like, because ultimately I was one that needed to decide. And the other pastor, we would talk, talk, talk. It took us like three months. Yeah, yeah. And it was exhausting because yeah. it was like – but if we go to two, it's going to complicate this, and these people are going to be totally. mad about it. We know they're going to be mad. Totally. But if we stay at one, it's yeah. going to complicate here. Yeah. And, these, and you were like, as opposed to us going, you know what our church needs? It needs to go to two, sir. Or it needs to stay yeah. at one, and we're right. going to go. And that's a simple example, but it, it shows when other people have opinions about mm-hmm. it, especially at churches and us, you're just like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. So I don't have problems making decisions, like what should I eat tonight? Or yeah. what are we yeah. going to do as a family yeah. or whatever? But man, when it comes to things that people are going to be passionate yeah. and about, I'm always like, let's think about this some more. Yeah. Let's think. I don't know. Do you it, do that? Do you worry about that? Well, it's interesting because I had to take a change theory class at Wheaton as part of my master's degree. And that was like one of the things we talked about, especially change in church or making decisions in church. Because no matter what it is, from changing out the couches in the lobby to <laughs> adding a second service, yes. people don't like change. That's right. And so there is you do have to go through a whole process of like helping people learn just how to make changes and be okay. You have to get like buy-in. Mm-hmm. You do have to weigh people's thoughts. You do have to move forward knowing you're going to get pushback. Like, so it is, I mean, it's interesting when you think about decision fatigue about these bigger things, it makes sense that it would be exhausted because especially in church leadership or any type of leadership position, you're weighing so many people's opinions. So, you know, Brian, we don't have a lot of time left, but how do you land? Like just you're you're the one who it all kind of falls to as a lead pastor. You're the one who it all kind of falls to in bigger decisions. How do you finally go, okay, I'm confident this is what the Lord says. I might be the wrong person to answer this, but I would say, you know, make sure you've prayerfully and you've you've run it over. Uh, make sure involve other people that you trust, mm-hmm. right? For big decisions, yeah. Um, whether it be personal decisions, should I buy this house or not? Should I this or church decisions? Should we do this? Uh, you know, this is why there's elder boards. This yeah, is why there's other so staff true. members. So make sure 
Uh, and so what I'm going to say here, I don't necessarily do well. There does come a point a decision has to be made. Yep. And once you make that decision, you need to move forward. Yeah. This is the decision we've made. Even if it blows up in our face, we're not yep. going to go back and yep. do this. Uh, but we're going to go. I struggle That's with that. That's good. The, once the decision's made, we've chosen our path. Mm-hmm. Let's run down that path and yep. let's go. And let's and let's sort of fail forward yep. if we have to. All right. Well, that's decision fatigue for you. It's Friday. You know what that means. A top five list. Top five. Top five. Top five. Top five. Top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right. That's our theme song. And uh, so with that in mind, Brian, we are going to do... I feel like this is kind of a Brian-centric top five list because yes. this is one of your favorite shows. hundred percent. Do you want to tell the people what we're doing? I love The Office. It's one of mm-hmm. my favorite shows of all time. Uh, and you and I, uh, are go- you're a fan of The Office yes. as well. Yes. So we're just going to do top five favorite Office characters. characters. Now, I, I think this is going to be... I think we're gonna have a lot of the same. I'm yeah, more probably. interested in order, okay, okay. Than I even am in in what they are. So okay. we'll see, we'll see. What? Yeah, did you this guess? should be fun. Okay, so um, my number five is very random, but the first time this character was introduced, he's not in the show very much. I died of laughter, and I actually rewound the scene a ton. It is a. Uh, Dwight's cousin Moe's. Moe's true. <laughs> when he's Mo's. chasing down their car in the, so at the funny. beet farm, I I just died and died and died of laughter. Like what about that in the character. When Moe's like looks longingly at like the uh, the scarecrow. <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah, I love I love Moe's. That's my number five. Mo's. All right, uh, number five. Uh, I'm going to go one of the main main characters. Okay. I'm going to go Dwight. Dwight is a great character, of and course. And the more you yes. re- rewatch yes. the show, the more you love Dwight. But yeah. I just love, in, again, in the finale, uh, that Dwight, like, he's now in charge. And yeah. he uh, he gives Jim and Pam, like, their severance and all of yeah. this stuff. I just, he's, he, he has a great character arc. He really He finally marries Angela. I, like, I, all of that stuff is so good. He's just, and, he, and anyone who hasn't, like, done a Dwight where he just goes, he says something, he just goes, false. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very quotable. Yes. He's very memeable. Okay, my number four, I'm going to go with Daryl Philbin. I just feel like he's the cool guy at the office, and I he's so like funny. I love his relationship very briefly when he dates Kelly Kapoor, and he just puts her in her place constantly. <laughs> like, he just the, won't mess with her crazy at all. the line that Kelly says where she goes, he just says everything on his mind. What kind of game is that? <laughs> That's so good. That's funny. All right, That's my funny. number four. All right, my number four is uh, my number four is going to be Kevin Malone. I love Kevin Malone. You're going to find him on my list too. Kevin Malone is uh, he <laughs> plays that character so so well. Well, yeah. And he if you just watch the nuances of that show, Kevin will like yeah. He will do the funniest things. He's that so you don't funny. Even notice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love Kevin. Malone. I love Kevin Malone too. There are so many memorable things with him, and the fact that he's in the band Scrantonicity. It's just like there's. I I love the backstories they give their characters on that show. <laughs> All right, my number three. I'm actually gonna make this a couple because I feel like one is not one without the other. I'm going Jim and Pam. Number three. You're going Jim and Pam. I am. See, I am. Yeah. For number three, and then we'll have a discussion here because Kay. mine is just Jim. Okay, fair. Yeah, Jim Jim's Halpert great. Is just too Jim's funny. great. From the very first episode where Jim puts all of Dwight's stuff in Jello, <laughs> uh, all the things he has to. But then at the end, like they they actually do him and Dwight do love each other. Yeah, they right? become like, buds. Uh, and he gets Michael there for the yeah. wedding. Yeah. 
Now, there, I will encourage you to Google sometime about was Pam Halpert actually a good person? <laughs> there is an Internet uh, thread out there that says Jim uh, that Pam was not a good person. That People she, hate women, I'm she telling stu- you. She strung him. I like Pam Beasley. Yeah, I'm a Pam yeah. Beasley fan. but uh, She just needed to grow in her confidence. Yeah. Yeah. That was her storyline. She needed to fight. She needed to be more sure of herself. I mean, there is at the end she, where she says, I couldn't even watch the documentary because I just wanted to yell at the screen, Pam, what you want yeah. is right in front of you. Yeah. So there is that. I but actually kind of like her storyline a lot. People are too mean to Do you enjoy that she time. was engaged and kissed Jim, but then turned, yeah. turned him away? Yes. I th- because I thought that was all part of her story. She's engaged forever to a guy she doesn't love. She's in love with her best friend. I like. I just thought it was all part of her journey. I'm not saying kind of engaged people go kiss him. Bloody. I'm not saying that, but okay. Yeah, I like that. I actually like Pam. She's on my honorable mentions yeah. list. So. Okay. Um, number two, I gotta go with Kelly Kapoor. She is like undoubtedly, especially as I think Mindy Kaling came into her own as the show went on, that character got so funny Dude. and so just like watchable. I love her. Did you see the clip going around the other day? There was at a baseball game. And they both had separate dates. They were sitting in rows. Like, they were clearly there together, but in rows, like, one in front of the other. Uh, Right by the dugout in the front row uh, was Ryan and then Kelly. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And people were, like, just going crazy, like, look, Ryan and Kelly are in a game together. (laughs) That's so fun. They're, like, best friends in real life. They are friends. Yeah, it's so fun. Yes. So fun. Um, All right, honorable mentions? Or do you get to give your number two yet? Okay. My number two, and I love this character. He plays somewhat randomly. Uh, but man, every time he does anything, including a clip I will tell you about that that we still do in my family, Creed Bratton. Oh, Creed! I forgot about Creed. He's he's because he he's forgettable. He like blends in on purpose. I love Creed, and there's the one where Jim messes up all the birthdays, but then Michael comes in, and everyone gets all happy because Michael sings Happy Birthday in falsetto. Yeah, for Creed, and then yeah. and then this is what we always still do in our house. Anytime we sing Happy Birthday, because then they go skip around the room. Skip Creed's just going around the room. <laughs> I don't he's that. skipping around the room. And so to this day, we'll still be like, skip around the room. Oh, that's entertaining. I love Creed Bratton. Creed Bratton. All, All right, right. Let's do two things here. Okay. I want to hear honorable mention. Okay. And then we're going to, hopefully you're okay with me breaking away here. I would like to know two or three characters of The Office you dislike. Oh, okay. First, wow. give me the honorable okay. mention of what you like. All right. Uh, I got Phyllis, who the only reason I really love Phyllis is because of that one thing where, is it somebody new? It might be Karen comes into town and she's like, Phyllis, Phyllis Vance, married to Bob Vance. You better know who you're talking to, honey, <laughs> or some line like that. And it is so funny. As soon as she marries Bob Vance, she like loves herself. Bob and it Vance, is, Vance from Yeah, it's so funny. There's another weird, you could go down these rabbit holes that, um, that the documentary is all about, uh, Actually, Vance refer- Bob Vance Refrigeration, <laughs> and it's like a big infomercial for oh, Bob Vance. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Because anytime they mention it, they always go Bob Vance Vance Refrigeration. <laughs> uh, I also have Michael Scott, of course, on my list. You got, you got a, you can't watch The Office without like love hating Michael Scott. He's such a great character. That's true. And then I got, I can't, I couldn't remember her last name, but Holly, who ends up marrying Michael, so sweet, such a great addition yes. to the yes. show, and like m- matching him for nerdiness is so sweet. I loved her. Yes. Uh, I just put down two, Pam, who you yeah, mentioned before, yeah. and Andy. Andy Bernard. Andy. Andy Bernard. He's so great. The He's Nard so dog. great. Yep. <laughs> All right. Are there one or yeah. two characters of The Office yeah. that you're like, I can't stand them? Yeah. So I hated uh, – I mean, the hard part is it's still funny, okay? Yes. 
I, I would say I didn't like Karen uh, Philip Pelly because I felt like she was a little boring, okay. honestly. Like, I didn't think they gave her character much character. Mm-hmm. And they didn't allow her to shine, really, Rashida uh, Rash- uh, uh, Jones, Jones yep. as an actress very much. So okay. I, she just felt very boring to me. For other reasons, I didn't like Todd Packer because he was just like, ew, gross, Todd Packer. But like, you kind of also loved that about him. So yes. I feel a little torn about that. What about you? Oh, I forgot my honorable mention, too, to add Toby Flenderson. I love Toby <laughs> Flenderson. Uh, a couple of I in, in the ones I was thinking of, I did not like Todd Packer. Like, yeah. he's always the one where he has a big role. You have to change it. Right, in the room. right. Uh, I did not like Jan Levinson Gould. Oh, no, 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 definitely not. Nope. But funny, that's the hard part is like you love to hate him. And then I didn't like when they brought in Robert California. No, he, that, that was that really was stupid. Weird, yeah. Just get like again cringeworthy. Yeah, so, I agree. A couple that I didn't like. All right, yeah. number one, who you got? Well, number one, you should know it by now. My all time favorite office character has always been Kevin Malone. I am obsessed with him. I just think he's funny. I think he's a subtle, he's so subtle, but like brilliant. I, just, I literally love him as a character it's true it's true yeah. Kevin Malone is great yeah so I'm gonna go to uh I'm gonna go obvious okay I'm gonna go very straightforward my number one office character is Michael Scott okay there you go the you love show him. completely changed when he left that's uh, true it did the, not for the better not for the better you're right from that's what she said to just yeah. how cringeworthy he <laughs> yeah. is and how sweet he is yeah uh i will go number one i will go Michael yeah Scott. yeah i was i was watching an interview with him a few years ago you may have seen it because you do all these office deep dives but that from season one to season two the producers of the show were like we need you to make michael scott like 10 percent more likable because he was so like you didn't really like there was nothing yeah. redemptive about him in season one, but you do see him grow as time goes on, and that's what becomes he becomes lovable, and you he have does. affection for him. Do you know one end. of the weird things about the office that I was very disappointed to learn was that he actually offered to stay on the show, <gasps> like and oh. they kind of were like, no, we're good. Like, like your storyline started. Done. I think it had started like he was going to leave, and then he was like. Oh, no he way. He tried to stay, and I just think that show, it was still funny without him, but he, It wasn't the same. He yeah. drove that show. Yeah, he definitely that drove was fun. That I love The Office. All right. Well, that was our top five list. Let us know any characters that we might have missed that are some of your favorites. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian From Look, we know it is your 4th of July weekend. We hope you have some very fun plans, maybe a grill out, a picnic, a fireworks show, something you're going to do, and... We thought in honor of uh, this holiday, we would bring you some red, white, and blue trivia. Wave the flag. Let's Wave do it. Wave the flag. Here is some 4th of July trivia. These are some fun facts you may not know. This is from the Pioneer Woman. She's out of. Uh, she's from Oklahoma, by the way, my, uh, my state. And she's got some tips for us or some little tidbits for us. Okay, okay. here's the first one. John Adams predicted that Independence Day would be a huge celebration for many generations to come. In a letter he wrote to his wife, Abigail Adams, he declared that one day that the 4th of July should be a day filled with games, sports, parades, and laughter. He basically wrote out our list of the best things to do on the 4th well of July. Done, yeah, John prophetic Adams. John okay. Adams. Uh, next one. Independence Day was once celebrated on July the 5th. What? The holiday fell on a Sunday in 1779, so Americans celebrated on Monday the 5th of July and all the pastors, thank you. Yes, all the pastors were really grateful for that. Okay, here's one that I always think is interesting when you find it out. Three U.S. presidents have died on the 4th of July. Oh. James Monroe, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson all died on the Patriotic Day. Adams and Jefferson both Same passed day. 1826. Monroe passed 
five years later in 1831. Okay, it's been a long time. We need somebody else. Yep. Well, that was dark. Come on now. Gosh, Brian, wow. Uh, next, there are some copies of the Declaration of Independence with a woman's signature on a it. A woman? Mary Catherine Goddard wasn't one of the official signers in 1776, but the printer and publisher added her name to the Declaration of Independence after she was hired by Congress to print copies. Wow, look at that. Look at those feminists back in the day. All and right. And then they killed her for being a witch. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, here's one. The 50th star was added to the American flag on July 4th, 1960. That was because of Hawaii becoming a U.S. state, which still, like, Hawaii does not feel like a U.S. state. It doesn't. I would like to visit it. Me too. I agree. Uh, John Adams thought Independence Day should be celebrated on July the 2nd. Oh. He had a point. Given that the Continental Congress did declare its freedom from Great Britain on July 2nd, 1776, however, an official document explaining this move to the public wasn't published until two days later, July uh, the 4th, 1776. Uh, all right. About, why not both? Why not both? I like, I <laughs> yes. like that. I like when you uh, you have that response. Why not both? That's good. All right. Here's a fun one. Americans consume a lot of hot dogs on July 4th. About 150 million, to be exact, according to the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. Wow, I want a job there. I want to be elected. (laughs) I am now declaring my candidacy for the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. I mean, that is a place to work. Los Angeles residents alone consume about 30 million pounds of hot dogs on July 4th. It's safe to say they're a holiday favorite. I have never wanted to more be in politics or have an I office. I mean, who knew there was a hot dog and sausage council? Are you going to have a hot dog over the weekend? Oh, uh, no. I will have as many as are humanly possible. So you're going to eat you're a lot of these 150 million. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Next, the Nathan's Famous Fourth of July Hot Dog Eating Contest began over a century ago. According to the company itself, the first first official contest, unofficial contest took place on July 4th, 1916. The context, contest, I can read, which began with four immigrants competing to determine who was the most patriotic wow. ended up becoming one of the most widely known July 4th traditions. <laughs> we're going to get four immigrants. How do we test their patriotism? Eat the, Eat the hot, hot dogs. dogs. Oh, wow. you got to love America. That's so America right there. That is so America. All right. Uh, despite what you might have thought, only two men signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. You can thank John Hancock and Charles Thompson for this one. I wonder why John Hancock become the, became the name we stuck with and not Charles Thompson. Because he signed it so big. Oh, okay. Wow. You know your that American history. Answer. Okay. All yes. Right. Give me your Charles Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's why Hancock could see into the future. Like if I sign this Man, really big, brilliant. Involved, I'm in. Brilliant. I gotta they'll, I gotta do that more. They'll place me on the National Hot Dog and Sausage <laughs> Council. Uh next one. There are approximately sixteen thousand Independence Day fireworks displays that take place each year. Whoa. America's Fourth of July tradition is a bit of a loud one, but iconic nonetheless. According to history.com, the custom dates back to 1777. Oh, didn't know they had fireworks back then. But every dog owner hates them. <laughs> every dog yes. owner hates them. That's true. When we look at the cost, Americans spend over $1 billion on fireworks every 4th of July. That is absolutely insane. Come on, you got to read what they said there. It's a, very good. A plan. billion? Oh, 
It says, this fact just blows our minds. <laughs> but, um, well. <laughs> All right, next, July 4th wasn't an official holiday until almost 100 years after the Declaration oh, of Independence was okay. signed. It wasn't common to celebrate this patriotic event for the first few decades of America's independence. When it was established as an official holiday in 1870, it became one of the most popular non-religious celebrations of the year. All right. Uh, There were only about 2.5 million people living in the United States in 1776. The number is drastically different now, Brian. 332 million people live here today. That's a lot of hot dogs. That is. All right, this one. This one's too bad. Hospitals (laughs) receive a surplus of patients on July 4th due to fireworks-related injuries. In 2020... An estimated 15,600 people were hospitalized with with injuries related to fireworks. Learning proper firework handling protocol Mm. can help prevent those mishaps. That's a good message for all of us. I do have to admit that when we were younger, we would get a gutter and we would shoot like uh, bottle rockets at each other. (laughs) So stupid. That is so stupid. Don't do that. But those were the good old days. Good old days. (laughs) When we played with fireworks as kids. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's another one you might not know. Our national anthem wasn't the Star Spangled Banner until 1931. I didn't realize that. It took 117 years for the words written in 1814 by Francis Key Scott. Scott Key. This says Key Scott, but you're right. It is Scott Key. That's, That's right. so funny. Even as, I, even as I was reading it, I questioned it. This says Francis Key Scott, but it is Francis Scott Key. To gain federal recognition. Now it is easily one of the most famous songs in the country. That's right. Before that, little known fact, our national anthem was Sweet Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say I'm proud to be an American. Ah, uh, yes, yes. All right, next. One World Trade Center in New York was designed to be 1,776 feet tall. One of the most spectacular features of the building is its height, which represents the year America declared independence from Great Britain. Ah, I never knew that. That is interesting. All right, here's here's a little fact for you. The Liberty Bell hasn't been rung since 1846. Hmm. Every year on July 4th, children who are descendants of the Declaration signers tap the bell 13 times. It's a sentimental tradition to help honor the original 13 colonies. The last time the bell rang was on Washington's birthday in February of 1846 when a major crack appeared in the bell. That's right. Next, the first newspaper to print the Declaration of Independence was the Pennsylvania Evening Post, which they did on July the 6th, 1776. Okay. Uh, Here's another one for you. George Washington celebrated the 4th of July in 1778. Even though he was at war, he treated the U.S. soldiers to a double ration of rum and a cannon salute. I love. Hopefully not in that order. I love that. Well, this weekend, you probably, hopefully not in that order. If you're having rum or a cannon salute or fireworks or hot dogs, whatever you're doing, we hope you have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.